0: Welcome to Season 2 of the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Hey podcast listeners, thank you so much for your patience with us this week and the slight delay in getting the episode out to you. Unfortunately, I have been battling that cold and flu season all week and wasn't able to get this to you as soon as I would like. So I appreciate you waiting on us and I hope that you love today's episode. Today's episode features Dr. Kevin Kruger and Dr. Kevin Kruger draws on more than 35 years of experience in higher education. Since 2012, he has served as president and CEO for NASPA, Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education. Prior to his role as president, Dr. Kruger worked for 18 years as the associate executive director and served as both the chief operating officer and chief financial officer for NASPA. He's held a range of student affairs positions at Southern Methodist University and the University of Maryland, and as NASPA president, Dr. Kruger represents student affairs at a variety of national forums and is a frequent contributor to higher education news stories on the college student experience. Dr. Kruger has published and presented nationally on trends in higher education, student success, degree completion strategies for low income and first generation students, technology, and change management for leadership in higher education. He's a proud father of two children one a college junior, and the other a senior in high school. Dr. Kruger received his MA and PhD in counseling and personnel services from the University of Maryland. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kevin Kruger, president of NASPA. We're glad to have you, Kevin.
1: Oh, it's good to be here, Jill. Thanks for asking me.
0: And today's conversation with Dr. Kruger is really going to focus on uh, student affairs as a broad profession and who our students are today and that impact on the conduct process. So I think a a lot of times in student conduct, we think of ourselves as very specialized, very niche, and sometimes even isolated and misunderstood by our other student affairs colleagues. So I'm excited to have Kevin speak with us a bit on how we fit into the larger picture of what's going on with the profession. But as usual, we always like to start with our guests journey into their current role. So Kevin, can you tell us how you got here?
1: Sure um, uh, it, it's uh, a little non-traditional well I should start off with um, kind of traditional I, I was uh, like many student affairs folks I was a uh, involved as a student leader as an undergrad I was an RA and an uh, orientation advisor and um, uh, but you know at the time that I was an uh, undergraduate there was there wasn't a lot of kind of conversation about student affairs as a profession so it really wasn't until almost graduation that I of asks my hall director, how do you get to do this kind of work? And that sort of opened up this uh, idea that uh, student affairs existed. So I was a little, um, wasn't the most informed decision, I must say. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it worked out okay. Um, but I ended up going to the university of Maryland. Um, and I started off an orientation and uh, for my master's degree there. And it, one of those sort of a little bit, my personality, a little bit, um, this, the opportunity I had, I, I'm a high achieving person. Uh, you know, my, um, Strength Quest, the Achiever is number one, uh, which you know, was a big surprise. And um, one of my first uh, practicum was with the uh, with it was, was happened to be with the Vice President of Student Affairs, his name was Bud Thomas. He was the VP of Student Affairs at Maryland, and and you know as a young person, I was sitting across the desk from him, and I remember kind of in the, some of those early meetings coming out there, like that's what I want to do. I want to be a Vice President of Student Affairs. So the really the early third of my career was was um, kind of pro- progressing through a series of positions that I hoped would position me to be competitive for a vice president's job. Um, so I worked in Res Life, um, worked in admissions, I worked in student activities, I uh, was a team of students, and I uh, was really sort of, uh, you know, moving up the, up, up the uh, organizational charge to try to get to that position. Um, and then um, uh, had got this sort of call out of the blue from, the, at that time, the executive director of NASPA. Her name is Liz Nuss, um, and she, uh, she, I had a loose connection with her through Maryland, and, she said that she had this job open. It was the number two person in the office, the assistant executive director, and would I be interested? And I'm like, eh, not really. I really want to stay on campus. And she kind of got me to uh, take the train down to DC and just have the conversation with her. So I, I, I agreed to do that. And then after two hours of that conversation, I was like, yeah, I think I do want this job. And what intrigued me about NASPA at the time, or the idea of working for a professional association, was rather than sort of focusing on kind of, you know, campus basis just to, to have that opportunity to think more broadly about what's happening in higher education and student affairs, you know, more globally and, um, and to be part of a, a, a larger conversation around that. And so I said, I will do that. For, I'll do that for two years. And, and then I'll go back to a campus and fast forward. I'm now in my 24th year at NASBUS. So you see how that worked out. Um, and then along the way I was able to, uh, uh get when the, uh, next executive director retired, Gwen Dungy, I, um, I was a candidate for a national in national search for this position, and we named it president. And I was fortunate enough to get the job. So, kind of, you know, I've, you know, the, the the easy thing is I've stayed in student affairs. I haven't like, you know, gone very far from that. But I still have got very hooked into the kind of work that we do in professional associations. I will, I will say along the way, and just a connection to ASCA. Um, first of all, I've been to a number of ASCA conferences over the years, not just as a presenter, but also as an attendee. Um, I was in my Dean of Students role was, um, uh, at that point, what we called the the Chief Judicial Officer. So I had quite a bit of um, student conduct responsibilities. Um, And and even going back to my first job out of grad school when I was in the, uh, I was an area coordinator at Southern Methodist University, Um, I supervised the uh, Residential Judicial Board at the time, you know, all the training and I was in all the hearings. So have um, you know sort of have a, a, uh, a great appreciation for um, the hard work that and the important work that conduct officers do and and the role that that plays with student affairs. So I've been fortunate to have um, have that have that experience. Uh,
0: I kind of wanted to start chanting like one of us, one of us. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. You know, I, I work in a lot of different functions, so I actually can this, this one of us uh, kind of chant can happen in a lot of different places, um, but. in in this particular one, uh, the conduct one was was really important. I you a quick anecdote when I when I was um, when I was at UMBC and I was uh, in the judicial role and, and had that as part of my responsibility. You know, as as just as you know, you know this this isn't always the the most fun enjoyable part of um, student affairs work because you're dealing with very serious um, issues. And, and, and uh, twice this happened, and it was. And I, I think most people who work in conduct have had something like this happen to them. And, um, it was a student who, uh, I, uh, we expelled, um, from, um, or suspended, excuse me, suspended mm-hmm. and, uh, for, uh, you know, a series of alcohol violations and variety of uh, disruptive issues. And, um, his person had been to the system a number of times, uh, you know, and of course, it, you know, at the time, you know, he, he hated me. Um, I had disrupted his life. He came back two years later and, uh, talked about how that, that, Final decision of, of holding him accountable for his behavior was what got his life back on track, and he realized he had some substance abuse issues and some emotional control issues. And he came back to thank me for being one somebody who took the hard stance with, with him, so that and that that he believes got his life back on track. That's just my you know one anecdote. But I know that many of the people who listen to this podcast have had similar experiences. That while in the midst of something that's really difficult, these um, we have this huge educational opportunity now um, to. Uh, help students, um, you know, manage some of the more difficult issues of their life.
0: I think that moment that you described, that student that comes back and thinks us, even though we may have removed them from campus for a time, mm-hmm. those are the students, those are the reason that a lot of us are in this work. Uh, that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those true learning moments that uh, the student who's right. not going to seek out a leadership role or maybe yeah. other campus involvement, they're not going to find us otherwise. Um, yeah. so I really, yeah. I appreciate that you've had that joy moment too, where the student comes back and maybe two or five years later, uh, maybe you didn't think you had an impact at the time, but that kind of warm yeah. fuzzy that comes back yeah. around, we need those wins yeah. so but badly. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, you
1: know, and yeah, we do, we do. And I think, you know, I think they're, e- I think they come easier when we're, you know, if you're like, you know, working with student leaders, you know, or like a uh, leadership program, that kind of thing, when these the moments are, are maybe a little bit more developmental um, in a positive way, um, but I think you know. I'm not sure. I think I think this is at least in my experience when I talk to student affairs folks, This is one of the reasons that we do this work, and one of the reasons that we, whether you're in conduct or res life or activities or whatever it is, one of the reasons we do it is that we know that we have come to appreciate, at least, that the that these, these sometimes micro, sometimes macro interactions we have with students really do make a difference you know, because of the time in the life that they are. And, and I think that even just enough of them come back and, and express that kind of appreciation that I think it uh, it's, it, uh, it, could have, uh, it you know, gives us the, the, the juice we need to keep going in, in the work because it can be kind of tough at times. Um, but you're right, I think that that is a very common element. And not everybody gets that kind of, hey, thanks, thanks kind of thing, but we know in our heart that we are doing some really important work. I think the other thing is, you know, in conduct is that you know, there's some obviously very, very serious things that occur on a campus that have to have very serious consequences. But you know, it's part of the fabric of the campus that allows students to make mistakes, you know, and to be held accountable for those mistakes um, and for their behavior and their judgment. But where the consequences don't have to be catastrophic, and I think that that um, that learning opportunity, um, that learning, those learning moments, are also part of you know why we do the work we do, and, and it's why Connect so important. I mean, because you're Really, part of the educational mission here, and that's a you know that's a, that's you know it's community standards and, and that part of the work as well. But the, the educational part of the work, I think, is a lot of what I think draws people to it.
0: I think that's a great transition to the question of how do you, as kind of this in, in your position, how do you see student conduct fitting into the larger fabric of student affairs and higher education today?
1: Well, you know, it's it's uh, I mean, first let's say that. Um, among the many functions of student affairs, the work that uh, conduct administrators do today I think is more important than ever um, and maybe more important than ever than we've, than in a time that we've seen in the last 20 years. And I think that's borne out. You can certainly see that by ASCA's growth, um, you know, the growth of the profession, and, and in some ways that even the accelerated professionalization of it, I think it, I think it's, it plays a very critical role um, in the development of community. Um, and, uh, you know, the adherence to community standards is a part of community. Um, and, uh, and, and the, and the nature that this is part of the educational process, I think is, you know, is, is really critical. Having said that, there are some, you know, really significant kind of significantly important issues that have emerged in higher education that have put conduct kind of front and center. Um, uh, you know, the probably the most, obviously the most emblematic of that is as the, context around sexual violence that we've seen on college campuses over the last, since, really, since April 2011. Whenever we talk about the, that that kind of threshold point, I always want to, I don't have to remind your, your members, but when I'm talking to external audiences, um, I want to remind people that um, college universities did not discover sexual violence as a challenge and a problem in April, April 2011. Having said that, I think that that was a watershed moment for our industry, um, and, and, and in a really positive way in terms of increasing um, uh, resources, uh, um, re- increasing support, support services for victims, tightening our, pro- our just our reporting processes up, um, creating a little more transparency and visibility for how, how students can report. Uh, this, I think there's a lot, I think the industry, our whole industry, I think evolved, but student conduct was just really the center of, of uh, helping higher education kind of deal with that issue. And, you know, so I think that that's, uh, in, that in my observation, I think that's been a really Important role uh, for uh, for the conduct profession, um, and I think that higher education and their students um, have benefited greatly from that from that work. Um, I'm, I think that just as a little aside, you know, you know, obviously we're all kind of curious about when the final regulations are going to come out. Um, but um, one of the components of that that I think is that I've heard may come out is the notion of restorative justice. Strategies um, as as one part of the way in which we um, think about how we um, uh, deal with this very complex issue, and I think that that will uh, hopefully in the end be something that could be a very positive thing for the work that we do with students. Uh, I think the other one, is, you know, conceptually right now is is around um, this really um, contentious national debate around free speech, activism, and protest, and and how that also intersects with the work of conduct. And I think there's some, this is really hard. I think the the, uh, the 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 really fuzzy line between how students express themselves and in what format they express themselves and when that um, can and often does run in, into conflict with the uh, code of conduct and, uh, and community standards, how we resolve that I think is, uh, is increasingly difficult, um, and is very much in the public eye. And, uh, you know, so I think as students navigate this, this period of time we're in right now, where, um, where we have a very activist generation and we have a lot of issues that are kind of front and center on our campuses, how we, how we resolve this in an educational way and yet still attain, still, still also having some attention to community, community standards is really going to keep the conduct folks in, um, you know, in a, uh, in limelight in a lot of ways. Um, And so the work that you do is even more important and more nuanced because these are also um, very, very difficult issues to sort out.
0: I want to acknowledge for our listeners that uh, we're recording today. It's September 27th of 2018. And as Kevin and I are speaking, um, the uh, Judge Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford yeah. hearing is happening in real time. And so I think our, our mindset is fairly focused on, on that. Um, so we won't release this episode until November, uh, or late October, but that's kind of where we are now. So as we talk about waiting for the regulations, mm-hmm. by the time this mm-hmm. uh, gets released, we yeah. may have them. And so I just want listeners to be aware of where we are in time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So.
1: Well, that's good. That's good yeah. Well, it's a good, it's a good point. And I think that, you know, the, we'll, we'll, um, we'll have some space to have a look back on this Kavanaugh hearings and who knows what the outcome of it'll be. But I think it, it know, it, it also reinforces for me. Um, and I have to say that I did, I was in meetings all day, so I've not seen um, any of the actual testimony, but the, the dynamics of this prosecutor being in the, the, uh, the Senate hearing, um, and my, my concerns that that this person will only ask questions of Dr. Ford and not Dr. Kavanaugh kind of, you know, Rings for me a little bit about some of the concerns that we have on campus about what will happen if regulations come out where cross-examination of victims uh, of sexual violence will occur within our student conduct hearings, and the sort of you know this movement that it seems to be not just in—I mean, clearly in sexual violence, but in general—that um, I think our I think folks from outside the academy have a have a struggle with how to to kind of understand the purpose of of a conduct. Processes on a campus, you know, and and want these all to be replicating, um, you know, criminal justice um, proceedings. So, you know, I, I really worry, Jill, about the, the progress we've made over the last five years of really creating more pathways and more opportunities for victims to come forward. That, that this, some of this, that even the culture around the Kavanaugh thing can, you know, will have in the way that, you know, the way that Dr. Ford has done, she had to move her family, um, you know, like that, that we're going to move backwards in terms of, you know, creating this sense that victims of the sexual violence and incident will, will feel safe bringing it forward.
0: Uh, Senator Feinstein mm-hmm. said something really mm-hmm. poignant this morning, which was, this is mm-hmm. a job interview mm-hmm. for Judge mm-hmm. Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. not a trial of Dr. Ford. And I think that's a really important focus point. Uh, but the New York Times also did a really great piece this week on mm-hmm. how young people are viewing uh, what this means for them. And I, I saw one of the quotes, mm-hmm. something to the effect of what we're teaching our our young men specifically is that you should make uh, bad choices and you should be violent in your youth because it won't have consequences as an adult. And that mm-hmm. is a fascinating lesson to hear from a high school student in terms of their interpretation. You
1: know, as we, as, and when you take a step back, you know, from things like this, and, but I think you can't. You have to, I, for me at least, I think about this also in the context of the of the me too movement because it's, you know, there's some really positive things that are happening in society for us in space in terms of largely women, but you know, also men and, and transgender um, folks in colleges and outside of college coming forward. Um, so there's some things about that that are really positive, but then you almost feel like when you get, it seems like anytime we get something around congressional Senate, you know, a, a government, we, we step back, we go back three steps. So I don't know. It's, a, it's it's hard to go to see, you know, we won't know until, you know, we look back at this period, like you know, two years from now, and say, "What was the real impact of this? Not just in our society, but also on campuses." So, it's, but no doubt, it's troubling, and the kind of sub-messages that are sent, in particular, you know, to young men, is um, is, is uh, really really troubling. So, you know, we get, you know, I was at, a, I did a program here at NASA yesterday. We had a group in, and somebody after I was done my presentation, person said, "You know, can you talk a little bit about what you think the impact of like the national politics are in the work that we do on campus?" and and uh, and you know that's like a two hour that's a that's a ten hour conversation because you know it's just it's hard to separate you know we don't operate in a vacuum we're operating in this sort of larger context and it's hard to sort of get a you know you we know, could see it day to day but I think it'll be interesting when we look back at this these four years in particular and see what's been what has been the, the real impact on the work that we're trying to do into creating equitable and just you know you know environments in our campus.
0: And let's zoom out for a minute, and I know your current expertise is really on identifying who our students are that are entering our spaces now, coming out of that larger global context Uh and into our microcosms of our institutions, Um, and that our millennial generation is moved on. Our millennial generation are now our student affairs colleagues. They're in the working world. Um, they are parents. Um, not to say that our, our current students are not parents, but uh, from from a traditional mm-hmm. age range, we're seeing uh, a brand new kind of group identity come in. And I'll I'll throw a kind of our traditional disclaimers out that uh, as we talk about Generation yeah. Z, we are we are not intending. To pigeonhole or marginalize all individuals of this generation into one right. subsection, right. Uh, but really to talk about kind of some overall trends that are shifting from mm-hmm. how we worked with our millennial yeah. students yeah. to how we're now going to work with Gen Z. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Thanks for the disclaimer. I, I, I do, I do like the conversation about generations, but we have to be careful about you know, anything. I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly diverse generation of you know millions of people. So, you know, one simple you know set of statements or slides is not going to capture all that. So, thanks for raising that.
0: So, given that kind of upfront, Kevin, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing uh, in terms of the identities of our students that are entering college today?
1: Well, let me, um, me, me try, let me try to pick up on three three quick themes here, um, and maybe we can kind of, you know, we can dig into a couple of them um, if you, if you want. Um, you know, one is uh, in, in an incredibly positive way. Every generation, every and every year of every generation is becoming a more diverse. Uh, in, in relationship to almost every identity, um, certainly on racial and ethnic lines, um, this notion that as a country we're going to be a majority, minority uh, majority country by twenty forty is is a real stat that we kind of that kind of is baked in, and I think that that means that increasingly our freshman classes, our transfer classes, and students, uh, even non traditional students, are coming to us are going to be increasingly um, uh, diverse. And I think that that is creates really a great opportunity for something that um, uh, is a term that Joseph Ayun, is the president of Northeastern, uses in his book, uh, Robot Proof, which is another subject, but he talks about these critical skills that we're going to need in the 21st century. And and one of them he, he labels cultural agility. And there's lots of different ways you can talk about the ability to get along with, to interact with people who are different than you, but the cultural agility one thing works a little bit, which is this sort of, to being agile, being able to be um, flexible enough to deal with multiple identities, multiple races, multiple ethnicities, g- different gender in the workplace, different socioeconomic backgrounds. This notion of this being culturally agile, I think, is really kind of cool. And I think those opportunities will become increasingly um, um, frequent and also important as our as this generation kind of rolls through our colleges um, because it is going to be so diverse. So that's that's sort of one observation. Second thing is that they, um, you know, all the evidence uh, suggests, you know, that that this particular generation is even more kind of progressive than previous generations. And so um, I'm, you know, uh, I think that that is going to um, uh, have a number of different effects for us. Um, Our institutions as, you know, as progressive as they might want to be are still institutions. And so I think um, students um, in this generation will be coming to our campuses pushing against our institutions, you know, for historic practices around, you know, embedded institutional racism and, and faculty hiring practices and policies and procedures and you, you name it. So I think that that um, is uh, a, a really good outcome because I think, you know, I, I tend not to be uh, of the mind that we should be afraid of protest and activism. In fact, we to encourage it because this isn't that what we want? And we want students to be engaged in their own communities and, and participating in, actively in their own uh, democracy, essentially. I mean, this is what a great laboratory for that to take place in the college university. So if we're you know it's easy for me to say like I'm not a college president, so I don't have students sitting in my in my you know in my office. Um, just that idea of students sitting in your office is actually a great thing. don't oh, don't want to encourage that. you know I, think the, I mean, I think the other aspect of this issue is that I think you know as students as this generations clearly, um, is more energized around um, a variety of social justice issues and progressive issues, they're going to be pushing against institutions in in, in some ways. And I think we should encourage that. I think we should um, celebrate the fact that students are courageous enough um, to um, to uh, sit in a president's office or protest on, on the campus. Um, and isn't that really what we want them to have? So I think that's going to be an outcome of this generation. I think that's really, really positive. It's not going to be easy, but I think that we should... Um, to embrace that. So one of the other things I want to say about that though is that, you know, and you can go back to the UCLA data, you know, that um, you know, have been tracking whether students are liberal or conservative. Uh it's really interesting, you know, despite the fact that we think of this generation as sort of maybe being, you know, wholly uh, uh kind of progressive, uh students as freshmen come in, they identify about thirty three percent or so or thirty five percent I think identify as what they might consider to be liberal. Um, and then about 23 or 24%, I think, uh, identify as conservative and everybody else in the middle of the road are kind of moderates. Um, and, I, and I think that in that little data point, there's some really interesting things that we should we should extract as we think about the impact on the, on the campus. Um, and that is that even if it is, you know, if 23 or 24% are conservative, that's an important component that we have to pay attention to in higher education, that we cannot, you know, sort of uh, create environments where where the voices of our conservative students can't be expressed as well. I think finding some space for that is, is really important. The um, last thing I was going to comment on is um, I'm really interested in uh, in Jean Twenge's work, uh, and, and for those of you who are listening, if you've read iGen, um, mm-hmm. it gives you kind of a, a viewpoint in that, but she, she's been tracking since 1979 a series of questions that she asks 10th, 11th, 12th graders, and, and her, one of her kind of conclusions that she has kind of stumbled upon is that around the time when the iPhone was released, uh, around 2009 or so, she started seeing a real change in behavior among um, uh, this, this continued even to today. And this behavior is everything from, you know, s- students who go out on dates without their parents, uh, students who go out at all without their parents, uh, drinking, premarital sex, drug use, variety of things. Um, and and, uh, increase, and, and on, on sort of decreasing, and then on the positive, and what's increasing is students who feel left out or lonely, which kind of gets to the mental health issues. One of the things I think is, is going to be cha- increasingly challenging for the contact folks is, so we have more and more students coming into high school without the kinds of experiences they historically have had. For example, drinking is way down in high school. When they get to college, sometimes their first experience with alcohol may be in a college setting. They're not going on dates as much, so some of their first early relationship experiences may be in college. And so I think we are dealing with now with a generation coming to us that has Fewer of some of those maturational issues that maybe they had experienced, um, you know, in previous generations, and now their first experience with some of this is um, here with us in college. So I think that, from a community standpoint and a context standpoint, um, creates some additional um, challenges for us. So, so yeah, so this generation is going to be, I, I think, it's going to be interesting um, and uh, and one that um, will feel differently to us than some of the issues that we had. Uh, and experienced um, with with some of our millennial um, uh, colleagues and peers who are now currently kind of working on those campuses, you know. And we, and I just la- one last thing on the activism. You know, I, I laugh sometimes because you know we want it both ways in student affairs. Uh, when students were not at, were not kind of activists, and you know all they cared about was parking and food, we were bemoaning the fact that the, about the apathy. And now that we have this generation who is really kind of activated around a variety of issues. I wonder you know, sometimes we're like, we're uncomfortable with the amount of activism there. So it's kind of sometimes you can't make them sound happy. So, um, I don't know if I got at your question. Yeah.
0: No, I think that's a great kind of overall profile. And I want to share a couple of statistics that um, I know you've talked about before yeah. that I think are valuable when we think about Gen Z. The first is a set of statistics about kind of how folks have been feeling in the last 12 months. And in the last 12 months, of students have identified as feeling overwhelmed, 59% have felt uh, loneliness, 54% have reported overwhelming anxiety, 42% have identified hopelessness, and 32% have identified as so depressed that they were having Mm -hmm. difficulty Mm -hmm. kind of generally functioning. And I think these are really important things to note because while we have this activated generation, we also have a generation of students who, for one reason or another, uh, we've created an environment and, that they were brought up in uh, that has created this overwhelming sense of anxiousness yeah. or yeah. Um, yeah. kind of high yeah. need that wasn't there before. So how do you feel like that information will impact the work we do on our campuses?
1: Well, let me, um, uh, let me just take one step back for your question and and also provide another layer of context. The mental health issues that you all met, you just mentioned, um, which are obviously something that we are dealing with in College to College, um, are not just college issues. They are, it's really a global, it's a, it's a global phenomenon that I mean, it doesn't matter where I go in the world. Um, they're, they're, um, all universities I talk to, they're struggling with some of the same mental health issues that we are struggling with. Um, and, um, and then, you know, one more sort of, sort of, kind of contextual statement. Um, it's not just it's not that students go to college how it, it, our whole society is dealing with this so this is um, you know we have, all we have to look at is you know you know, very high profile cases like uh, Anthony Bourdain um, you know to look at the impact of depression um, and anxiety and stress um, and suicide ideation is is something that it happens all over and you could make it a case actually that uh, if you're struggling with a mental health issue you best in and you're in, in college age population. the best place to be is in college because of some of the that we have. I mean, having said that, um, this is a real issue, right? So, we, I mean, this is, this is something we are dealing with then. Virtually every campus in America has seen increases year over year in, in, in the presenting of both serious psychological issues as well as just students who are, you know, who are struggling in general. Uh, annual survey of the Association of Counseling Center Directors, they do a survey of counseling centers, and, and now anxiety now is the number one presenting issue for students who come um, to counseling centers, followed by stress, the, depression. Number four is uh, students who are taking psychotropic medication. And then number five is suicidal thoughts or behavior. So yeah, it's pretty serious stuff. Um, and I think um, uh, this is the context around, you know, around and how students manage that stress, how they manage their anxiety. Um, you know, we do know, for example, and I think this is something that intersects with conduct, is that, uh, that students who are struggling um, from a mental health standpoint, You know, A notion that students self-medicate themselves um, with alcohol or other drugs can be a contributor to a variety of behavioral issues. Um, And and so I think this is really what makes conduct so important on campus is that it's not just simply, you know, you did this, here's the consequence, but it's the the role that student conduct plays in the fabric of the student's life and an understanding of the complexity of the issues that students present. Um, And so just like someone who comes into the health center and says, I have a cold, that may also be connection to someone that they may discover also has some depressive issues or some, uh, some substance abuse issues, or it could be other things that come around. Same thing for students who are processed through the, um, through the conduct system. It's an understanding that, these, that students' lives are very complex and there may be other things that are occurring that would suggest that more than just a judicial sanction is gonna be the appropriate outcome. Um, when many of the students really are really in need of other kinds of support and help which really speaks, I think, you know, Joe. one of the things I think has been one of the most positive things that we've seen in the last decade, probably, has been the emergence of a methodology and a, and a, and a practice around how we think about students in general, and that is, you know, that we we, we understand that, you know, these, a series of isolated incidents may roll off to be a larger problem, and at campuses and the work that they do in creating, you know, crisis teams and uh, response teams and the entire case management approach, of which conduct is a part of, I think is is as a great under, is a reflects an understanding of the fact that the, the students the issues that they present are not just behavioral but they're also psychological as well. And I think an under, that understanding is really important in the conduct work that you, that your members do. I
0: think that is a a really appreciated perspective. Conduct officers have we've always thought of ourselves as educators first uh, and as student resources. And the conduct process happens to be the mechanism by which we're doing the teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that holistic approach is something that ASCA yeah. has been teaching from the very beginning yeah. uh, in the 80s.
1: Well, you know, and, and, you know, just to add on that, but like, you know, like how important it is that, that students get, can interact with the institution through student conduct, because that might be the very thing that connects them to the kind of support they need to address, whether it be a psychological issue or a... a issue or a substance abuse issue or, or you know, or, or for that, potentially even suicide ideation. So, you know, I, when I think about this mental health issue, I think, you know, it's sort of a simple thing to say, but it's, but it, it's just the truest thing, is that, is that you can't hire enough counselors to deal with this. And at some point, it really becomes sort of, the, it takes a village kind of approach. And, and that village is comprised of lots of key people, but the conduct officers are one of them. Um, I I think, you know, just a quick, you know, editorial, I I wish we could get more faculty engaged in this as well, because they have a a window on on students' experience that sometimes doesn't get kind of connected to the larger fabric of the campus around how we support students with psychological issues.
0: Well, and ultimately, you know, whether your persistence goal is transfer articulation or graduation, uh, the persistence piece is supported through large networks for our students.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's a, um, you know, in, a, in an era when resources are tight and people like everybody's now, you know, performance-based funding and and all these kinds of things, you know, I think, uh, and, and a sometimes underappreciated role uh, in the retention, persistence, degree progress, you know, uh, equation is, is the, the ways in which student affairs professionals touch students um, and whether it be you know through conduct or, or the counseling center, or even sometimes just the conversations that occur in the residence hall, I think that those you know, the, you know, all the resources that we provide, I think, are, are are both important for the individual student, but they also are important for the student's academic progress as well.
0: Now, one of the other stats that you shared, um, which really struck me personally, um, was that the average attention span for millennials was sure. about twelve seconds. <laughs> The average yeah. attention span for a Gen Z student <laughs> is eight seconds, so four seconds slower, which is technically slower than the, or I guess lower than the attention span of a goldfish, which is about a nine-second right. attention span. So, <laughs> so, given that new information and our attention spans getting shorter, and if a YouTube video is longer than thirty seconds, I'm not watching it. How do we get students to yeah. hear us?
1: That humorous anecdote um, is. Is really at the heart of one of the the larger challenges we have in student affairs, and um, and I would see it both as a challenge and an opportunity. So let me talk about the challenge first. The challenge is, and this is not just student affairs, but it's it's the whole way in which the university learning process intersects with students um, is that the way students learn and their preferred learning modality is really not. Uh, the university uh, large largely instruction and lear- teaching and learning have not caught up with, that, with those modalities. That doesn't mean that because, you know, students uh, in this generation and probably the tail end of the millennia as well all have kind of latched on to uh, short YouTube videos as the way that they are entertained and sometimes the way that they are educated. Well, we, it's, it, I don't know that we can actually reimagine our curriculum in that regard. But it does sort of point to i think you know this is really an overstatement, but university college universities as entities whether it be student affairs or teaching learning are are a lot more analog than they are digital and students in the in the millennial generation and then in the gen z are much more digital and so i think we that mismatch i think can be can be can be difficult at times, having said that i think if in fact that this sort of attention span short learning opportunity if, if, and, and maybe you know, going back to Gene Twangy, if, if, if this uh, connection to our devices, uh, particularly for this generation, is impeding some of the uh, developmental opportunities or maybe making students feel less, uh, more lonely and more t- and left out, then, then everything we do in student affairs in particular plays a, a, a counterbalance to that. So every speaker, every movie, every educational opportunity, every leadership opportunity, every, you know, residence hall meeting, everything we do that gets um, students to engage with each other face-to-face is, in fact, uh, a positive counterbalance to some of the negative effects of technology. One of the things that's interesting is that um, when Gen Z students, young Gen Zs are, are, are surveyed, much more than millennials, they see the negative impact of technology. And I think in some ways they're looking for and are more open to some of the opportunities where um, things can be more um, uh, analog and face-to-face, and I think that's, creates a, that's the opportunity side for us, and I think that's you know, really a, a, a positive thing that us to think about.
0: It. I really liked what you said earlier about kind of your hope for more faculty engagement with our programs and yeah. the student affairs side. Can you talk about any successful models that you've seen where faculty have really engaged with student affairs for the success of our students?
1: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, so I think, you know, I think the first, uh, you know, observation I'd make is that, you know, I've been around student affairs a long time and we've been talking about academic student affairs collaboration or challenges for as long as I've been in higher ed. So this is a kind of perennial problem and, you know, it's not a unique thing to say, well, there's sort of academic and student affairs silos on campus. So this is something that we kind of, I think we kind of are challenged with it in in lots of different ways. I would say this, before I give you examples. If we're going to have meaningful student affairs, academic affairs collaborations, it's probably going to come from our side, and we can bemoan that, but I think that that is likely where it's going to come from because of the nature of the professoriate and where their attention is. And I think so. A lot of the outreach has to come from us. Having said that, um, I think that there are some really good examples, actually, and I think, you know, the, some of the best ones, you know, have, are well established amongst campuses, which is you know uh, around um, uh, civic and service, service learning and civic engagement. Um, it's, it's uh, connecting to the community. So I think it's a really powerful opportunity to take, uh, you know, check problems and issues that might express in the curriculum and then connecting students to a community experience that reinforces that or kind of more expands upon that knowledge. And so I think that that's a place where we certainly have seen a lot. Um, I think the other place, you know, is it, more emerging, um, Jill, and that is as an industry, I think we have we are really becoming very focused now on, attainment issues. You kind of alluded to that earlier. And in particular, I think we are, um, as, a, as, as, a, as a whole industry, um, sort of grappling with the fact that first-generation students, low-income students, and students of color other than some sectors of the API community all attain a degree in six years or whatever measure you want to use at a lower rate than their more privileged peers. And that disparity, um, which sometimes around you know, family families sometimes around economics, sometimes about race and necessity, is is a real challenge for higher education. And I think what we know now, as we as we bundle that up, we think about into a quality attainment. We also think about it in terms of student success. That the calculus around student success clearly requires more collaboration and partnering between academics and affairs, because academic affairs can't solve this problem, nor can student affairs. So, having that kind of connection and. And so, a great example about is, is just take data. You know, we, we know a lot now, more predictably now, about the kinds of experiences that that correlate to success for students. Many campuses are doing a lot of data analytics and a lot of predictive analytics. Uh, the campuses that are doing this well um, are able to make sure that um, that the data and the and the analysis of the data is not sort of siloed in one specific area. So, for example, if you, if you, if if residence hall. Staff who are tra- well trained can be aware of students who are struggling in a specific course or an academic uh, um, part of their academic life, um, and they're having to live in the residence hall. There's opportunities for us to um, engage with them in that regard. Um, there's campuses that are experimenting with student affairs staff having a cohort of, of, co- uh, of low-income first-gen students that they're that they're coaching and mentoring with the technology that the academic advisors have, so they can work effectively in that in that space. So I think that. You know around around student success I think we're going to see um, even many more collaborative opportunities between academics and affairs and I think it, I think some of that might lend itself to a really a shift on thinking about how we support students instead of thinking always from a population level that we start thinking about the end of one and and when you start thinking about the end of one from a student's standpoint you just simply need to have more people connected to that who can intervene with that specific student in, in a way that is appropriate for that student so I think those I think there's a real um, potential and hope for this. And as I talk to provosts and student affairs VPs, I hear this uh, dialogue around trying to find these linkages uh, becoming more critical for the institution.
0: I'm really glad you touched on the need to support our first gen students and our low SES students. And then I will also add our dreamer students um, differently Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. we have traditionally supported the other campus populations and and kind of going down to that N equals one level of what does this individual student need? uh, I'm seeing a lot of work being done around food and home security on college campuses Mm -hmm. that hasn't been part Mm -hmm. of our lexicon before. Uh, that's right. But with all of that in mind, I think it's still the great paradox of higher education, where we talk about our field and our profession as the great equalizer for social identity, and yet still haven't managed as a field to equalize our own house.
1: Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. That, so um, that, that's true, and I have, I have two thoughts about that. Um, one is we have a lot of work to do, right? So that's um, and
0: always, uh, always. Um,
1: having said that. I think we, I think it's I think I think we can be self-critical of our profession. At the same time, we can acknowledge that within higher education, um, uh, student affairs professionals and the way they work with students are fo- so far ahead of every other sector of, of the institution. Um, uh, we are the we are the folks who are, 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 are engaged in the difficult conversations about identity and race and ethnicity and sexual orientation. Um, we are the ones talking about gender. We are the, we are the ones who are thinking about the experience of our dreamers, for example, as you mentioned. Um, so I think, so that, that's one thing. Um, second thing, and I, and this hasn't really been released yet. It'll, it'll be released by the time, um, this podcast comes out. I just saw the preliminary data from a report that Coupa HR is doing. They, they looked at student affairs around pay equity and, uh, and, uh, diversification of the the workforce, that kind of thing. And and they clearly acknowledge that the most diverse sector of higher education institutionally is student affairs. We have made much more progress in terms of uh, equity, on equity issues uh, for women, uh, for uh, professionals of color, uh, the pay gap is smaller between men and women. And and so having said that, that's a positive thing. And yet we have a long way to go. Um, So we can't sort of simply say, well, look, look, you know, we're the best on campus when we, are, when we look critically at ourselves, we also say we have a lot of work to do internally as well. But I do think that, you know, um, one sort of component of that is, I don't know any other real organizing uh, effort on campus um, that actually pays attention to um, um, the student experience in the way that we do from an equity standpoint and a social justice standpoint. Again, not perfect, but, but I do think that that doesn't happen as intentionally in other sectors of the campus. And so that's a, that's, a, that's, a really, that's a real positive thing. I think that we should, while we're working on ourselves, also um, um, continue to, you know, to understand the importance of, of that for our, um, you know, for, us, for our students. I think the equity agenda is probably the most important agenda that we face in higher education. It's not just student affairs folks, but I think, you know, we, many members of the academy have realized that we have failed a lot of students along the way in the last, uh, last you know, 50, 40 years. And that we have a lot of work to do in terms of um, really creating true equity in um, in college campuses.
0: It's an interesting push-pull that I think a lot of us find ourselves in, where we are working uh, to improve a system that has oppressed. Yes. But the question is always, do we improve a system that has oppressed, or do we break the system and disrupt and start over? Uh, Which is, I think, always a million-dollar question and one that we face in a lot of places. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and I think it's you know uh, I'll just share, and I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but uh, I'll accept that you can write me individually when I give you my email address. Um, I think there's some generational differences about that. You know, I think I think that aren't necessarily bad. You know, inherently bad. I think I, it, I think my observation is, you know, that not just our students, but not just like student affairs professionals who are, you know our young professionals who are largely millennials who also grew up in a in a time where social justice issues were. Critical in during their you know kind of key developmental years, and, um, and and so I think that our own generation of young professionals in student affairs are really appropriately impatient in, with some of the structural, institutionally uh, institutional um, you know institutional issues that are around oppression and racism and, and a variety of other issues, and I, and so that impatience I think is does sort of lead us to maybe like let's let's, let's start from scratch, let's break the thing. When you have, you know, uh, folks who are in, in in privilege and power, who are much more likely to say, "We hear you, and let's think about some of the systemic changes necessary." But I think that that kind of push and pull is uh, is you know is, is operating every day on every campus, um, and and I think that's the, that is, it will increasingly be the nature of our work because the millennial population and this population that has this sort of passion. Is, is the biggest part of student affairs right now? You know, it's, you know, uh, it, not just say NASP, but if you Go to NASPA, you have eight thousand people in the in, in the conference. You know, uh, half of them are under are, you know are under thirty two years old um, and have a very different view of systems and institutions than the other half. And so I think that that half is going to get bigger and bigger as we kind of go on in the next you know next five years. And I think that that issue you just raised, Jill, is going to be. More salient for us, and, and also more challenging. I mean, you know, I know we're running out of time here, but I think this gets at the heart of why maybe we have so much attrition in student affairs. Is because I think that uh, uh, some of our young, young, professionals are very frustrated with the reality of uh, institutional politics that they're dealing with, particularly around some of these issues around equity and social justice.
0: Well, Kevin, I think you and I could probably ramble on yeah. for a really long time yeah. on these topics. So I'm going to um, respect the time that we have and ask you to share with our listeners what you're reading right now. Oh, yeah.
1: I, I love that question. I read a lot. Um, and so I read, actually, I read every day. If you ever heard my speech, and my, I, I come in early in the morning, and the first hour and a half of my day, I read. A lot of it's high-red stuff. But there, uh, I think um, this is real wonky. Um, uh, there's two books I'll, I'll share with you. Um, one I just finished, called it's called Measure What Matters. And here's a little tagline. It says, How Google, Bono, and the Gates Foundation rock the world with OKRs. And OKRs are objectives and key results. The way of looking at planning and how you organize your work that a lot of Fortune 500 and Silicon Valley is using. Um, And uh, what I love, one quick element about it is it separates the conversation around how you're achieving objectives from compensation. I love the idea of sort of separating that. that's one thing I'm reading right now that I'm really engaged by um and I just because I uh and I I've been wanting to do this but I um I was so energized by Justice Sotomayor at the conference last year I thought she was so amazing I just finished reading her My Beloved World and her her lived experience uh which she shared some of which she shared during the speech and um and her experience uh as a uh, as a, a young Latina and, and and now judge, it's really uh, it's an it's a, it's a it's an empowering story, and the way she thinks of family and colleagues and mentors and the role that she plays is uh, it's 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 a it's a good read for anybody. So those are the two that are high in my mind right now.
0: I am so bummed I missed Justice Sotomayor last year. If listeners want to get a hold of you after the show today, how can they reach you?
1: Well, I'm on, t- I'm, I'm on Twitter, at NASPA Perez, P-R-E-S. That's probably one easy way to engage in a dialogue, and, I, and I, I, I'm I active in Twitter, and that would be one, one way. Um, and I'm uh, easy to be found. I mean, my email address is on our website. It's K-K-R-U-G-E-R-K-Kruger at NASPA.org. I don't have anybody screens my email. I return all my email, and so if anybody was interested in... Side conversation about any of what I just said, I'd be. I would love the opportunity to do so. And let me just conclude by saying that uh, not only do I love ASCA because I think it's a great organization, um, but I um, I want to just reinforce how important it is for all of you and and work conduct uh, are professionals how important the work is that you do. Sometimes if not often you will get the kind of thanks and kind of high fives that maybe your activities colleagues get. Um, but as we think about the the most vexing challenges and issues that we deal with on college campus. Um, Your role is uh, central and vital, and I appreciate all that you do for uh, for the students with whom you work.
0: We really appreciate the acknowledgement. Uh, We we don't get a lot of it, and so when we get it, I think we hang on to it. If you'd like to reach the podcast, you can always email us at ascapodcast at gmail.com. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com, or tweet us at ASCAPodcast. Thank you so much, Kevin, for sharing your viewpoint today.
1: Thanks, Jill. I enjoyed it
0: next time in two weeks on the asca viewpoints podcast we welcome laura matthews laura serves as the director of student conduct at lynn university in florida and she will be talking to us all about the collaboration toolkit guide that helps us investigate and partner with our student organizations when we are investigating student organization misconduct and particularly fraternity and sorority life misconduct we hope you come back and join us This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton. That's me. Produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards, and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for Future guests, or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA at Gmail.com.